0: And welcome to Unspooled, Unspooled Top Three. I'm Amy Nicholson.
2: And I'm Paul Shear. And welcome to a very special episode of Unspooled. Today, we'll be sitting down with David Diggs and talking to him about films that really impacted him. And this is a new type of special that we'll be doing here on the show. They're not replacing our normal episodes, but they're supplementing our episodes, as we get to sit down with people that we genuinely like and we want to hear from. We want to hear what makes them tick from a movie standpoint.
0: Exactly. It is a chance for us to talk to people that we find fascinating about the movies that they find fascinating. And I am so happy that we're starting it off with a person who I feel like comes up on this show frequently when we are talking about actors and writers with insane amounts of charisma and insane talent.
2: Yes. Uh, so we'll have our interview with David and... Keep on looking out for these as we have a great lineup of people coming up in the next coming weeks. And maybe sometimes there'll be like three in a month and then you'll go two months without one. Who knows? We're calling Who knows? It as we like because we can. And you know what? You're getting it for free. So don't even worry about it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy listening to great people talk about movies. And, you know, my first moment with him, and it wasn't like a moment that he'd actually recognized that he had with me, was seeing Hamilton. I saw Hamilton before uh, there were any Tony nominations or anything like that. And seeing him on stage, it blew me away. His performance was just electric. And ever since that moment, I have watched and looked out for him in whatever he has done and just been a huge, huge fan. And that actually led me to... Kind of the topic that we're talking to today, which is uh, a film that he wrote and is in called Blind Spotting. Uh, that was a Sundance film. And how would you kind of describe Blind Spotting, Amy?
0: Yeah, Blind Spotting is about a couple days in the life of these two best friends. Um, one of the best friends, Colin, is played by Debbie Diggs. The other best friend, Miles, is played by Rafael Casal. They're like longtime friends, writing partners. They did a mixtape together like in 2010. They used to be roommates. They are like, forever buddies and collaborators. And in this movie, they're playing two guys who work together at a moving company who are just at really different points dealing with gentrification and race and policing in Oakland. And it's a movie that I think stretches boundaries of how movies work. You know, there's a part towards the end where like David digs pretty much straight to camera, does a spoken word piece. It's a really startling film. Um, it destroyed Sundance when it came out. and now it's a TV show,
2: yeah. well, that's really interesting. When it became a TV show, I was like, well, how are they going to do this? Like, how does this show exist past the film Because it's not like the film had, like, oh, well, where could these two characters go? I mean, it, it was pretty cut and dry. and um, and I got to see uh, the first two episodes. And they've done something really amazing. We'll kind of talk about all of that with them, but maybe we should just introduce our our guest of honor, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome David Diggs. We we're just talking about blind spotting. I'm such a fan of that film, and I love the way that you mix tone in that, and it it just felt so unique. So when you were doing a show, I was kind of wondering how are you going to continue doing that, you know? And I think one of the coolest things that you did was you changed the perspective of the main characters. You know, in the film, it's uh, you and Raph are the the two main characters, but in the show, um, it is actually the wife of Miles who takes uh, center stage. When Miles is sent to prison, uh, she has forced to move in with Miles's mother and start kind of a, a, a new life. And I wanted to Just talk to you a little bit about, you know, that choice. Like, you know, what was the idea behind, you know, taking the focus off of you two and kind of putting it on another character?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, it was for us, it was the only way we were going to do the show. You know, actually Lionsgate approached us and said, we think there's a TV show here. And we were like, you're wrong. Uh, because (laughs) because it took us 10 years to write this thing and we're tired and uh, we're not going to do that. We had the meeting anyway. And kind of over the course of the meeting, realized that all through the process, I remember when we were making the film, both when we were writing it, once uh, Jasmine was on board to play Ashley, that character that she really created became so special to us because she is so much like a lot of the, the women that that I grew up with and that we are both sort of helped uh, help shape who we are. We just always wanted more of her and, and both in the writing, but in particularly when we were editing the film in order to pull off this trick of getting you to root for, Uh, a convicted felon while he's pointing a gun at a police officer like we really had to be inside Colin's head yeah uh, the whole time and so it, it meant that anything extraneous started getting chipped away including a lot of great stuff with Ashley and so we always wanted more of her and since someone wanted to make a tv show out of this we were like okay well this is our opportunity to have that character be the center of it and um and they went for it so, yeah. So then we got to we got to do this thing where we pivot into to putting it all inside of her head. And again, a lot of clearing out of space um, for that, which is so we got to get Miles out of the way.
2: Yeah. You, <laughs> go, you just go jail. to my, you go to yeah. Yeah, Miles goes to jail. You're in Montana. Montana.
1: Colin's gone. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, yeah. So we again, like clear out space for the perspective that it's necessary to understand the story through through that lens. And then what we hadn't written a TV show before, so we didn't know this, but this half hour format is so lovely because, because you don't actually have to accomplish a ton of plot in that time, which is great. Um, I sort of was worried before we started it would feel restricting, but it didn't. It actually is super freeing um, because they can become these sort of tone poems. You actually have all these opportunities to introduce new characters in exciting ways, to introduce like kind of crazy techniques or we have a lot of dance in the film, we have a lot of verse in the film, to introduce these kind of artsy elements that because we don't need to get through a ton of events, there actually is space to explore these things that is really right. nice. Um, And I, I was surprised to figure that out while we were learning how to write a tv show in real time
2: well i think the thing that i'm so blown away by in both the movie and in the tv show is you really you mix these tones really effortlessly right like you go from like this you know this opening scene in the the show where it is like this kind of rapid fire dialogue into like you know, someone like into camera, rapping into camera, like, and then we're back, you know, so it's like, it's grounded, but it's heightened, but it's, you know, it's funny. Are there any films out there that you use as guideposts or, or things to steal from, you know, in in a good way, in a creative, fun way? Yeah. Like inspiring to you.
1: You know, theaters just opened up back here and, and I just, uh, I just went and saw the big Lebowski in movie theaters. And that was such a, we talk about Lebowski all the time, me and Raphael.
0: The Big Lebowski, directed by the Coen brothers, came out in 1998. It is the story of the dude, played by Jeff Bridges, who uh, drinks a lot of white Russians, is trying to figure out why somebody peed on his rug. And in the course there is Busby Berkeley-style musicals. Were you listening to the dude's story, Donnie? What? Were you listening to the dude's story? I was bowling. So you have no frame of reference here, Donnie. You're like a child who wanders into Walter. the middle of a movie and wants to
2: know w- Walter. What is he talking
1: my about my rug? Forget it, Donnie. You're out of your element. And it was definitely an important touchstone for this show because it does that really well. I guess the story itself is never aware that it's weird, right? Um, yeah. And so that that's a thing that we we kind of relied heavily on is this idea that like. This is a little different than Lebowski, but but what we decided for ourselves, is if you take as table stakes that everybody you run into is brilliant and beautiful and capable of anything, right? That's just right. true. Right. Uh, so if that's true, then it doesn't matter what you do and it doesn't matter when you do it. You just do it and you don't, but you never comment on it. You just turn right. the camera on and let it happen. Um, and so, yeah. and that's kind of when you look at like, when uh when the like the dude's sort of dream sequence and stuff and like these these yeah. sort of wild things that have or how he just finds himself becoming the the detective in this detective story and he he's just going on about his life right his life is not changed by this and therefore and since we're watching the film from his perspective the film's life isn't changed by this either the camera was on anyway <laughs> and right. so like that's kind of what we tried to
0: as you're describing that, as you're describing, like, what the Coens do that make it work, that you're able to adopt to make it work, it it you actually helped me get clarity on, like, two things I really, really hate in movies, and now I sort of understand why. Like, one of them... Is the dog reaction shot where someone does something weird and funny and you have to look at the dog? Like, you have to stop and, like, you have to break a moment to be like, this is so weird, even the dog cares about it. <laughs> and the other one is, like, as you're describing that, like, I was realizing I really hate this one type of comedy where somebody does something strange or out of the ordinary. And people stop and go. That was weird. Like the, that was weird is the punchline, and not that somebody just did something yeah. unexpected or cool or out of the ordinary. Like yeah. I like having room for weirdness.
1: I know you can also use that. I don't know. There's, a, there's. A, you can use that to your advantage too. Though the fact that 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 does happen so often. <laughs> one of my favorite moments in the in the series is. Uh, I don't know how much you guys have seen. I guess this is episode two, though. So I, I just know. saw the first one. Yeah. Oh, okay. There's this moment um in the in the second episode where there's there's an altercation at Ashley's job at her at her desk at the hotel between her and this this woman um and Miles's ghost who appears throughout the show from time to time after the second episode is there <laughs> also um in this interaction, and and Ashley is trying to, like navigate this crazy ghost of Christmas, whatever that's happening right now. and uh, and the woman walks away, and that that dog reaction shot is Miles's ghost. It cuts to the ghost and the ghost goes. So oh, that was weird. You know? <laughs> and to me, that is so goddamn funny I don't <laughs>
2: well, when you are doing, you know, an independent film, it's you, you know, you've worked on it for a tremendous amount of time. You're in it. So you are living in the tone. So you're bringing people in, but ultimately it's on your shoulders. But now in the TV show, you're bringing in other people, people who you haven't worked with, like Helen Hunt. And I obviously like, you know, I'm sure she's a fan of the movie. That's why she signed on to do it. But do you find like having to explain like, oh, well, this go with this. We, we're going to go in these places. Is it is it hard to get people on board or did you find that when you were reaching out to people, some people didn't want to go there or felt nervous to go there?
1: Nah, it was yeah. super easy. I don't. I mean, <laughs> the, particularly with someone like Helen, you know, Helen. We had sort of become friends before the before we started working on this together. And we, Rafa and I had wanted to ask her to play this part for a long time. We were scared to uh, to ask her, so we waited until we were really happy with the with the first couple of episodes, and then uh, we sent them to her, and she came back and was like, "Look." I love you guys and I and if we can find the time I'm I'm really down to do this. I think this is great. But if I do this, I'm I'm really doing it and and I have notes. And we were like, <laughs> yes, you know, to to us that was so wonderful and she unlocked a lot of things about Rainey that we hadn't we hadn't gotten to yet. And that's the that's what you get with great actors, right? Is if you can if you can cast the right people and let them really champion the characters, then it's only ever an extension. And so we, you know, every episode she would read the episode, she would send us her notes and we would go back in with the writers and we would address as many of them as possible. And if we had issues with some of them, we would re-talk to Helen. But it was like, and all of our actors really worked like that. Once, you know, once once the part is yours and we were pretty clear about this up front, and maybe it's because Raphael and I both are are sort of from that side of things in one way or another. But, you know, once they were cast, it was like, this is you now. We have to have our eyes on everything as showrunners, and we're going to miss things that are about you. So if you have an issue, pl- please bring it up. Like, f- Help us check our blind spots. It's the whole point of the thing. And so yeah, uh, we, we were really careful to cast the right people and that ultimately created this great feedback loop with the with the writing which is a thing unique to television that I think is so wonderful that nobody really talks about but actors are always in conversation with writers rooms in real time yeah you can see somebody do something in one episode and be like this character can do that and you go back in the writer's room and you know add it in it's wild
2: no it's amazing it's like and I think that also speaks to you both as these creators where you are allowing that ownership of a character to take over i always feel like whenever i've run a show or whenever i've done a show the the best moments are in really letting the actors feel like they are going to make choices that they feel are you know for lack of a better term like truthful right. you know or like they can believe in and feel like it's actually real was it how is it writing for a character like a strong female character like this you know uh was that like a, you know did you look to any inspiration or anything like that or is it just really life inspiration
1: uh I mean, for us it was life inspiration, but then we also hired uh, women in our writers' room to help us write write <laughs> right yeah. for them so we got we got a lot of help and a lot of input and like I said, like it becomes very collaborative so for Raphael and myself, the job was really to obviously get the scripts and and be responsible for the tone and stuff like that, but more outside of the writing just to be able to hold it all in our heads like these are the the sort of rules of this world uh, so as wardrobe questions are coming in or as all these are just like connective tissue right yeah but asking everybody else to bring all of their experience to it so by the time we get to episode three um, Aurora Guerrero is directing and she was the first mom who we had ever had as a director so far. You know, Um, although Taryn Anderson, our DP, has kids. So it was really that was always really helpful. Just having that perspective behind the camera. Right. um, Always being able to track that relationship. And then when Aurora came in, something else really magical happened about that became part of the world of the show. That really just feels like about how... The camera is aware of Sean in relationship to Ashley that we didn't have before and that I, I don't think that. Rafa and I would have been capable of articulating, you know. I, you know, I grew up watching like like classic comedies, you know. Yeah. Uh,
0: when you say classic, do you mean black and white or do you mean like Caddyshack?
1: I mean, I mean like black and like Abbott and Costello. Like, oh, classic, oh, wow. classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: If someone has never seen like an Abbott and Costello uh, movie, would you, what would you recommend? Like, is there one, like an entry point one? My
1: favorite movies are the one, are the horror ones. They're the, the, the Abbott and Costello meet Uh, Bella Lugosi. Yes. um,
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Ab and Costello meet Frankenstein. It's a 1948 American horror comedy uh, where Ab and Costello meet Frankenstein. It's actually a part of a series of films where Ab and Costello go out and uh, meet all sorts of horror characters from Count Dracula to the Wolfman, uh, Invisible Man, Dr. Jekyll Mr. Hyde, and the Mummy.
1: these crossovers <laughs> right? yeah. between horror movie franchises of the time, these comedy adaptations of horror movies where they would go and get the, like, you know, aging actors who played Frankenstein or who played and, Dracula. And, and Br- they couldn't always <laughs> do
2: it. Like, they had, like, one that like, was, like, Abbott and Costello meet the killer, Boris Karloff. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, it's, exactly. like, they <laughs> Couldn't get but the rights like, to the things. Yeah. Or it's, like, yeah, clearly. But,
1: and it, they're... And they're not great films all the time but the but the the dynamic that works still really really works. Oh uh, yeah. And i, I and
2: love I, I love those and these are great ones cuz it's Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, Abbott and Costello meet the Mummy. Uh, like I said Abbott and Costello meet the Killer, Boris Karloff, <laughs> Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man. They yeah. even go meet The Invisible Captain Man Kid. one is
1: f- fantastic. <laughs> All right. I love that. That it we'll put that on the list as well. Thank we should so put much. that on our short list
0: when we get to the horror section back in back in oh. things, back in Halloween times.
1: And as it relates to this, also I, I was a, a kid in the eighties and nineties, like I, like the heyday of the sitcom, really also. Right. You know, so like I love sitcoms. I love sitcoms, like in the in the traditional sense of what a sitcom is. So yeah. like um I would come home and watch like five of them back to that's back what to I'm back. Saying, right? mm-hmm. yeah. So like we had we had so many great sitcoms. And um, and there's something structural about this show. Like, my I don't know. Some people don't feel comfortable describing it as a sitcom because that seems to mean something. But it definitely is. We were we were very like careful about that. Yeah, Just that like we are returning to these characters. The episodes tend to be bottle episodes when they can be. Sometimes we'll have a very special episode. But like the the way that the houses function next to each other, the way the right. characters come in and out. There's a, a character of Nancy who is like such a in terms of how she is used is such used in like this classic. She's always walking into the scene, dropping a one liner, but we also get to like deepen and broaden these characters because, uh, because we can ground them and make them real in a yeah. way that you couldn't when you were only shooting, you know, multicam on a on a on a set in front of a right. live studio audience. So it's 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 cool. But I, I you know, I grew up watching Two Two Seven and Mister Belvedere and uh, yeah, <laughs> Cheers and like all of these things that become character studies, really. And that's that's sort of what the show is.
2: I'll tell you, like I, there's a comfort to um, coming home. Now, and turning on like the Disney Channel, because the Disney Channel is still doing like sitcoms, yeah. yeah, yeah and and you forget, like you can just slide into them in a way that you know, it's like, I know I can go revisit all the classic ones, but they're still like they're making them now, and yeah, 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 and there is something about that and those characters. And I think what what I love about this show and is it, you know, sitcoms, I always think, work because you want to visit the characters every week. You don't care. Right. Yes, the surroundings are great, but what you were talking about earlier, this idea of, like, you can exist in these poems. these to- like, You don't have to get a lot of plot. It's just about, like, kind of, I'm going to spend a half an hour with these people that I really like. Right. And they're going to have a little mini-adventure, but then next week I'll get to spend some more time with them. And I think that... That important, like that characterization, not leading with like just premise, 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 and, you know, like, like, and this is as obviously there is a premise, but you get to kind of just exist in a world here. And I think that that's really, uh, really kind of fun. Are you a three stooges, Marx Brothers or, uh, or Abbott and Costello person? Where do you, where do you fall? Like, are, is there one that you
1: like out of all three or? I, I mean, I, I think. If I'm being honest with myself, I'm an Abbott and Costello person. I feel like I'm supposed to say Marx Brothers, but, and I, and I love, I, I love the Marx Brothers. Sure. I, no, I, ne- I love, it. I was never a Stooges fan, but I, I Abbott yeah. and Costello, like, speaks to my soul. That kind I just, <laughs> I'm just a physical comedy. Like, I, I, there's the, that stuff's music, you know, it's just rhythm changes. It's, it's rhythm changes and stunts and, uh, and like yeah. the way that kind of banter, you know, the first, the scene in the film, Where we open up in the car and the the gun deal scene in in Blind Spotting the movie is, to me, like the most Abbott and Costello thing I've ever written. Like, yeah, I I love that scene so much. And when I remember screening the movie for the first time at Sundance and that scene came on and everybody laughed all the way through it, whether or not they had ever sat in a car with a gun before or not. And I was like, that's how funny works. Like, it's it's more rhythm than anything else. Like, you know, (laughs) So.
0: I love that defensive of in Costello because when we were going through the AFI 100 list in the first season of the show there were so many Marx Brothers and that was like the end basically of black and white like straight up comedy mm-hmm. and there's such a world to explore but I'm curious like I think a word that I keep hearing matter a lot to you is this idea of like collaboration you know like all the way up but like there has to be this partnership between you and Raphael at the top you know that I can only imagine is like strengthened by like being friends, being creative partners for over a decade now. And I was curious, I was picturing like you guys back when you were roommates, like <laughs> were there movies that you guys would just like put on late at night or like lazy mornings that were like your movies?
1: Uh, we, you know, we actually, it's funny, me and Rafa probably have pretty different taste in in movies in <laughs> a lot of ways. <laughs> Raphael loves a rom-com. When we were living together, the only uh, DVD we had was the box set of The West Wing. Uh, that was so it was on constantly, like actually all the time. Like, we could, you could, it was just on and you could drop in at any point in that show and just like sit down and start watching it and then get up and go away. But that was that was the thing I watched all the time.
2: The West Wing, which came out in 1999 and ran to May 2006, was an American political drama about the president. And it is the most Sorkin y of Sorkin shows, uh, all about good guys versus bad guys complicated people and the dialogue is amazing so many people say that this is uh peak sorkin and if you don't believe me take a listen to this kind of dialogue It seems to me if the event's over by 10, then I can be back
1: here at 11. Yes, sir. And you know what that means? Yes, sir. Means you could watch the girls' softball game.
0: Did you just snicker when you said that? No, sir.
1: Yes, you did. Mr. President. Thanks, Lou. When you said girls' softball game, you snickered. No, sir. Yes, you snickered, as if to indicate there was something wrong with my wanting to see a girls' softball game live via satellite. Well, you seem pretty excited about it, sir. Even
2: with Sorkin and West Wing, like, there's a... Pace and a rhythm, yeah. and and there's a musicality to his dialogue yeah. that I feel like this show has too. Like, and I think there's like I ultimately, and this is not a, a slide on Aaron Turk, I think he's great, but I think there's like there's a oh like a reverence to like his words, but it, it really is just that he writes a rhythm that you yeah. have to kind of keep in a style, and and your show has that too. Like this, like it, you know, when the banter is going, it's like you have to keep at this pace.
1: As people who came up writing. Poetry. We both got to start writing music and writing poetry. Right. So, um, which is very aware of rhythm. Um, both of those things are like very aware of rhythm and pace. That's, that's really what's, what's making that work. Um, and infusing is, and, and metaphor and wordplay. Right. So those are the things that are, are kind of at the foundation of how we taught ourselves how to write anything. Yeah, there's such a rhythm to everything that he writes and uh and you're right. You just kind of have to get on the train and and go with it and again like you don't get to you don't get to pause for laughter, you don't get to call attention to the joke or to the weirdness or to whatever because the the rhythm of it has to take precedent or the scene won't work and so you know those are the kinds of things that raphael and I can can have our eyes on on set as well and then again in the edit right you have to make everything three times so yeah you write it and shoot I, it and then cut it and I think we're because we spent so much time making music together uh, it's one of the things I think we're particularly attuned to is being like th- can we because of how we shot it there's like too much air between these Sentences, what can we do to cut away and cut back? And like, sh- sh- it just yeah. like the 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 pace is wrong. This feels a little bit like the, you know, like the top five, like rapper conversation that, that mm-hmm. we, we get into all the time, yeah. you know, whereas these um, positions will probably change every day for me, I guess. Sure. But uh, of late, I find myself talking about this new film that was at, I think it was at Sundance just this last year called Night of Kings. For the Ivory Coast.
2: Night
0: of the Kings. It came out in 2020. It is directed by Philippe Lacote. I have seen this movie. It is wild, and I really want Debbie to explain it.
1: It's... This story that takes place in a prison um, and it's this totally crazy, like basically the, the sort of overlord of this prison all within the community of inmates, right? The leader of it is, is dying and there's this ritual where this, a new person who is brought in is made to be the storyteller and uh, the storyteller has to tell a story and, Uh, If the story ends before the sun comes up, the storyteller will be killed. So he has to like keep everyone's interest uh, throughout the night. And so you're watching this kid who didn't know that this was what he was going to have to do, try to come up with a story to tell that he ends up sort of loosely telling the story of how he got into prison but he like is embellishing it a lot and he enlists the help of other inmates who are coming in and dancing parts of the story and are coming in and like singing parts of the story and then some of it are flashbacks to like actual recreations of like fantasy recreations of some of the moments and it's um it's this really beautiful i think about it all the time because it was such a such a cool just way of of telling story when I was uh, in college, I used to teach uh, at a school through this program called the Arts Literacy Program. I used to teach at um, Central Falls High School in Providence or in, in Rhode Island in Central Falls. where I was going to Brown University and I would go in and teach in these classes. And it had a large Cape Verdean community. And I remember at the school, a lot of uh, these kids were struggling and, and talking to some of their teachers realized that like what they were struggling with was this, you know, the sort of five paragraph essay structure that you need to learn. And a big part of the reason that it didn't work for them was because they don't tell stories the same way. They don't follow the same kind of logic. When you listen to them talk in the way that is culturally uh, specific to how they grew up, there's just a pile of ideas, Right. All of these things happened in the yeah. story. And I'm telling this part now and this part now and this part now. So restructuring this and it's really beautiful and actually super engaging and keeps you really, really focused. Um, but restructuring that mode of talking into this thing where there's a beginning, middle and end in this really specific kind of sterile way, like was something that they were having a hard time adapting to. Um and I remember watching this film and being like, Oh wow, this is not a Western way of telling a story, actually. Yeah. Like and it was and it was so useful to me to remember that like huge parts of the world don't tell stories the same way as we do. Yeah. Yeah. And so like those are the kinds of things I would put in my in my time capsule or whatever. Or, like, I that, like I love this. Like show it. off the different ways that we tell stories. And Knight Kings is on Hulu.
0: Yeah, I've actually seen it too. It's wild. It's, it's wild, really right? that's a wild pick. Like it's yeah, there's like I remember there's like a kind of this magical looking battle of like shape-shifting CG animals that start yeah. holding court. And then, um Denis Levant, like the very crazy looking French actors they are like running around with a chicken on his shoulder. Yeah. Like such it's a trick. It's wild. Man. I love movies that like you get plunged into You're exactly right about the storytelling. I love that you brought that up. And like the and that this is a movie you get like plunged into a world with like its own social codes and rules, and you just have to like catch up immediately they're not like here in the day blah 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 it's like they trust you the audience to run alongside it
1: yeah and it's sometimes it's also just nice to watch something that I think was not made with me as an audience in mind right like that movie probably Mm. isn't for me or it wasn't there nothing was put there to make me feel comfortable Um, and that is also what was fun about watching it like that my hand wasn't being held in any way yeah
0: a really thought-provoking conversation. Now I'm chewing on like 90 different things that I spun out of while David was mentioning what he thinks is really interesting in art. That was awesome. So thank you, David, for coming by.
2: I love that we've kind of deconstructed some of the DNA of Blindspotting, that uh, it's part Coen Brothers, part Aaron Sorkin, and part Abbott and Costello would never really put all those together. But when you say it, like that, it it really makes sense, and that's probably the best ad for this show you could possibly uh, have. And if you want to see more of Blind Spotting, check it out on Stars. Uh, they are right in the beginning of their first season; you can catch up right away. Uh, but I think you will like this. It's a great companion piece to the movie, and it also stands alone from the film as well. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say... I'm okay. When the truth
0: is... I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say... Hang it in
2: there. Because... If I ask for help...